All right, folks, good news. Once again, this is a CME-approved episode. So if you need continuing education credit at no cost to you, just go to the show notes for the episode at icuscenarios.com. Click the link, fill out a very short survey, and you can claim your credit. Our thanks once again to Academic CME for sponsoring the credit here. Give them your thanks as well. And now into the show. Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Brian Bowling with you here today and with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Brandon Odo. Hi, Brian. Joining us today is another familiar voice. I almost said familiar face, but you haven't seen, you haven't seen it, what any of us look like. Um, a friend of the podcast, Casey Albin, neurointensivist extraordinaire from down in Atlanta, is going to come and join us again for more neurocritical care goodness. Um, Brandon, I think you have a case for us. Is that right? I don't, so I hope you do. I think so. Okay, Casey. So you are covering the neuro ICU and you hear about a patient who is 49 years old. He's a male. He has diabetes and hypertension. He's a smoker, kind of assorted risk factors, but nothing really interesting, but he was found down at home, meaning his family found him on the ground and they don't know what happened to him, but he was minimally responsive, seemed like he had been incontinent of urine. Um, they call an ambulance. They bring him to the ED where he's intubated uh, for his mental status. He gets kind of the usual labs and things, and they're sort of uninteresting. He has a just a trace leukocytosis. His white count's like 11 and a half. He's got a chemistry which is pretty normal looking. He's a lactate of like three. Uh, they CT his head because of course they do, and it's just kind of unremarkable, and they bring him up to the ICU, and they say, have fun, figure this out, he's intubated. <laughs> so you go and see him. Uh, he's on no sedation so far, and at this point, um, they used a short-acting paralytic to intubate him, and it should have worn off. But when you examine him, all you really get is some brainstem reflexes. He kind of coughs and things, but that's about it. He does slightly withdraw all his extremities to pain, um, and he, he has like normal DTRs and tone and stuff, if that's your thing. But otherwise, he's just kind of unremarkable. He seems like a reasonably healthy looking guy who's just not really doing anything. His vitals are, are also kind of unremarkable. Uh, maybe he's having occasional kind of runs of some labile tachycardia. That's about it. So you're, you got this guy in front of you. There's clearly something wrong with him. I mean, he's deeply encephalopathic, but you really don't know why. And on the kind of usual package of tests that most people get, um, nothing has really emerged to localize a problem. So what, what do you do with someone like this? What's your approach? What are your initial thoughts? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a challenging case, right? This is something that everyone's going to be like, what is going on with this guy? Um, not a terribly unusual presentation, I have to say, to the neuro ICU. I feel like sometimes we do get these um, yeah, we're not really sure why they're altered. Uh, we intubated them. Doesn't seem like they're that septic or something. So um, here you go. Um, so this would not be like totally out of the ordinary. <clears throat> so as you're telling me this story, there are a couple of things that I heard that I'm sort of already clued in on in terms of like, this is going to help us trying to figure out what's going on. 
Um, the first is that he's found down at home. And so, you know, someone found him down at home. And so I think the first thing that I'm thinking of is like, how do we get in touch with this person so that we can actually get more history about what was going on leading up to this. So he does have a family. Uh, that's who the ER had spoken to. They accompanied the ambulance. Um, he has a, uh, a wife and um, that's who lives with him. And that's, that's who found him. So like, what, what are your questions for them? Yeah. So I think the first things that I want to know are sort of what was leading, like what was his behavior leading up to this, right? Um, you know, unfortunately, the common things being, you know, common, the the causes of encephalopathy that are due to a toxic metabolic process are like way more common than anything that's going to be primary neurologic. Um, you know, it's very frustrating for all of, you know, all of medicine when neurology writes toxic metabolic workup will sign off. But um, that's that's the most common things. And so I really actually first want to know about toxic ingestions, right? Or anything that might have put him at risk for a toxidrome that we would not really screen for, right? Urine, um, tox screens, serum tox screens, like really not that great for everything. Especially when you think about things like maybe carbon monoxide poisoning, that would be really like dependent on a history for us to work up, right? Like we'd have to find out, you know, has there been any like, is it the winter time? Has there been any, you know, left the heater going or the car engine going? Something like, you know, that would give us a real clue as to why this person's altered from a toxic process that we would not normally pick up on, right? And that's true also for, you know, some of the um, ingestions from like um, over-the-counter medications, right? So, or not over-the-counter, but um, prescription medications that are overdosed. So if I call the family, one of the first things that I'm going to ask them for is I need a patient's med list, right? So if the patient we find out is like on baclofen, then I'm going to have a pretty high suspicion that this is baclofen intoxication, right? Because baclofen intoxication can uh, profoundly depress someone's mental status. And like, then it's probably not a secret. I mean, I've seen patients that look basically brain dead that or just overdose on their baclofen. So getting a history first of like, you know, was there any sort of toxic process going on? Was there some sort of overdose or uh, just accidental mistaking of a prescription drug. And then I'm going to want to know, like, was there a behavior change prior to this? And so one of the other things that you said that was a little bit curious is that there's this, he had urinated on himself and, you know, his lactate's a little bit elevated. And I'm sure that you're thinking what I'm thinking was, was, was this a missed seizure? And sure, lots of things can cause uh, a lactate elevation. Three isn't even that high, right? Like sometimes with seizures, we see a profound lactic elevation. Um, so this would not be like a slam dunk that the lactate was 12 and then on the next check it was zero and we did nothing. Um, so that is another thing where I would like to more investigate. So I'd ask the family, like, have he, has he had seizures before? Has there ever been um, subtle seizures or waking up at night or thrashing around or other episodes of incontinence or staring spells that you've seen? Because um, that might give us a clue if there were some actually more subacute process going on. So let, let, me, uh, let me reiterate this to you and, and make sure I have it right. Because I, I think for a lot of people and especially non-neuro people, the challenge in something like this where there's so little to diagnostically like get traction on is even just to build a differential. So the things that you are thinking of with something like this uh, would include a seizure, um, which I, at this point I assume would mean he either had a seizure and is now postictal or is still seizing. But either way, that was the, the cause of the problem. Some kind of toxicological 
problem. Either he ingested something accidentally or on purpose, or there was some environmental thing or something. Um, and well, I guess those are the, those are kind of the main ones that are specific. And then obviously there's many other vague undifferentiated things, but Right. Well, I think exactly what you're saying. Like, I think of this, when I think of someone who's coming in with encephalopathy, I actually think of three broad categories, which is one, the metabolic and systemic problems. So something like myxedema coma, hypercarbia, uremia, things that we're going to mostly pick up on with just sort of the like run-of-the-mill shotgun screen that the ED sends. So toxic, uh, the metabolic. Then I think about drugs. So intoxications, like we talked about, like things that are easy to screen for on a urine drug screen, and then those that are going to require us actually talking to the family and getting a real med list, or trying to come up with like, is there some other exposure that would put them, you know, at risk of a certain toxic toxic syndrome? And then I think of the third category as being primary neurologic, right? So metabolic, most common drugs, also pretty common primary neurologic reason of which we sort of can break it down into the acute onset processes and the subacute onset processes. Okay. So that's when I think of like encephalopathy NOS, like those are the ways that I'm putting, putting a framework together. Okay. So let me interject a sort of practical systems kind of question. Let's say you're working in the emergency room when this guy comes in. How do I how do I know? Let's assume I work in a system that has both a medicine ICU service and a neuro ICU service. How do I know who to call for this guy? Right, because my gut tells me. I mean, I'm a neurocritical care person, so I kind of default to the neuro ICU. But if this is a metabolic or drug overdose problem, that really doesn't belong in the neuro ICU, right? That really belongs in the MICU. So, is there a good way for me to sort of differentiate who to call? Or do I just default to the MICU because it's more likely? And then when they sort of start sorting things out and realize it's primarily neurological, they try to punt it to you. Yeah, I think that is a great question. I think most of these patients actually do end up in the MICU with a neurology consult. And then some of them do make their way, you know, like they, we realize that this is really more of a primary neurologic process. And then we recognize like that patient's better served in a neuro ACU or we can constantly be thinking first and foremost, about the neurologic issue. Um, but I find that most of these patients are getting a consult unless they were admitted to a MICU at sort of the local hospital. And then the local hospital's kind of done some of the screen for this metabolic or drug intoxication process. And then they say, huh, we've like really not come up with anything. Uh, we're going to transfer this to a neuro ICU, you know, tertiary referral center. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's wrong. I mean, I think most of the time, this is going to be a metabolic or toxic process. Um, and so I think, you know, from a trying to protect neuro ICU beds for the things that, you know, have a, you know, a true neurologic or neurosurgical intervention that we can offer, these patients are okay with a neuroconsult for, you know, for the part of the initial workup. And if they need to be transferred, that's okay. Um. I think every hospital probably has a little bit of a different process there. What I will say, um, the seizure thing can go both ways, right? I think many, many MICUs are and should be comfortable managing status epilepticus or non-convulsive status epilepticus. But I think if you, you have a strong suspicion that that's really driving 
this patient's presentation. If seizure is like number one, two, and three, and this is a not known, you know, not a known alcohol user who's having alcohol withdrawal seizures or not someone who's known to have epilepsy and has a reason to be a non-convulsive status or status epilepticus, that might be a reason to kind of more sway you towards the neuro-ICU for like that dedicated seizure workup. So you uh, speak with his family and you do note that they had sent a, a routine urine drug talk screen, which was not positive for anything except... Um, uh, benzos, which he received in the ER, let's say. Um, but you talk to the family and they say, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't imagine that he like took anything. He's a pretty normal guy. He, um, eats normal stuff. He smokes, you know, a few cigarettes a day, but it's just, you know, over the counter cigarettes. Uh, he, I've, I, I've never known him to do any other drugs for fun. Nobody around has been sick or feeling unwell. He, he drinks uh, occasionally socially, but, uh, I mean, nothing weird as far as we know. Um, the only thing, and they kind of start telling you that he's been a little, a little weird lately. And what they mean is for the past, let's say, couple of weeks, he was kind of saying that he felt tired and just sort of sort of malaise. Like, you know, he thought he was coming down with something, but nothing very specific. Um, and they thought he was kind of acting a little off. Like, they occasionally noticed him, like, kind of talking to himself or seemed almost like he was sort of seeing or hearing things. You know, nothing super overt, but that's kind of how it looked. Uh, he was getting more forgetful. Um, he kind of forgot to do a few things that really should have been obvious to him. Um, and it was all just kind of vague, but it was definitely seemed a little out of the ordinary. Um, and then actually this, the morning of admission, he had called his daughter, um, left a, a voicemail, which was totally bizarre. Like she couldn't make any sense what he was talking about. Um, and it, that's actually, uh, she went to go check on him and that's when they had found him at home. So it's like, he'd been kind of off was all I could really say about it, but they didn't really have much more to say. And, you know, otherwise he'd been as healthy as any diabetic with hypertension can be. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's actually really valuable history to get from the family, right? Like, this is a little off, right? That, to me, is a really, really important clue that this is maybe a subacute process that's kind of reaching um, a more acute phase and a sort of more um, dramatic presentation, but maybe something has been going on in the background. And that, to me, actually heightens my suspicion a little bit to you know, is this a primary neurologic process? And so when we think about primary neurologic process, I think of kind of, I break that down further into two groups, right? The first group is the, the acute onset primary neurologic problem. That's a stroke. That's a traumatic brain injury. That's some sort of either, you know, acute seizures that we've witnessed. So like something that happened right then. When I think of a subacute primary neurologic issue, I'm thinking more about infectious or autoimmune or sort of neoplastic processes. And now you're saying that, well, he kind of has this like kind of weird, funny change in behavior. And that to me sort of raises a red flag of, is this either some sort of chronic indolent infection or do we have some autoimmune or neoplastic process? So you're, it sounds like you're saying if it was an acute neurologic problem, probably would be something a little more obvious. Like if he 
had a major head bleed or something they would have seen on a scan. And, and we've kind of ruled, I mean, for some kind of toxologic or other problem, also if it were super acute, it'd be a little more obvious. Maybe there's still room for a subacute exposure of some kind or infection or something. Um, but there's kind of a bigger category of subacute neurologic things that we've opened up as well. The one thing I will say um, that's a that's a big soapbox of mine is if you have like unexplained loss of consciousness uh, like this person did, I think it is crucially important that the ED and whoever is consulting in the ED get a CTA head and neck, including the basilar artery. So one of the pearls I'll leave people with is like this acute, you know, what we we didn't know at the time about this background family history. All we knew is the guy rolled in and he was like basically comatose. Um, those patients, those, the vascular thing that's not going to be obvious because you're not going to see it unless you look for it is a basilar thrombosis. So little pearl there, like if this guy rolls into the ED, like ask yourself like one, two, and three times, like, am I missing a basilar thrombosis? Okay. Because that, of course, could be treated by thrombolytics, thrombectomies, whatever. Yeah, thrombectomy. Like we move that patient. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's like, I can't miss that could be easily missed in this scenario that you, you know, really want to find. Would, would you want a CTA in someone like this? You, I mean, yes. You know, it's yes, four hours. 100%. Since, okay. Oh, yeah. Because, like, even if we can't intervene anymore, like, I can then at least tell the family, like, oh, this person's had a massive brainstem stroke. Right. Like, you know, we, we should know that. Okay. All right. So you're kind of getting some sense for the timeline, which sounds like it's helpful. But now, now what? You know, you still have to kind of pursue this a little further. <laughs> now comes the holy trinity of the neuro workup, <laughs> which is that they need an MRI, an LP, an EEG. Okay. In what order? I mean, we're, <laughs> I mean, this is just, I remember as a neurology residency uh, or as a neurology resident, like in the ED consult, I would just like ask myself after each patient, like, do they need an MRI, LP or an EEG? Like, do they need an MRI, LP or EEG? Um, and I think this is really helpful, actually, right? Like this it's is in this your is template, we, sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Like this is a dot phrase, like. But truly, um, I think that this is where we're going to get the the meat of information. So they've had a CT. I think for anyone who doesn't come in with like anyone who comes in with like altered mental status, in my mind, deserves a head CT before they get a needle stuck in their back. I like don't want to be the one herniating that patient. So. Um, They've had that, and you said it was pretty unremarkable. Um, the next thing I really want to know in terms of like triaging which of these is most important is whether or not they had a fever. So any any clarity on that? Not since arriving at the hospital, at least not one that was recorded. And um, he had not really talked about it, but I mean, he doesn't go around checking his temperature, so yeah, hard to totally. say. So we don't we are not seeing that he is like robustly febrile. If, if this patient was like robustly febrile, I think there is some urgency in that they need a lumbar puncture to try to understand is this a is this a either a bacterial meningitis or a viral meningitis. You know, of the viral meningitis, like you know, HSV is the one that we really have good treatment for. Um, and so I, I think when there is a concern for that infection, like then the LP becomes really time sensitive. But you're not saying that this this doesn't seem like a, a highly, highly likely concerning for, um, for infection with what we have right now, bearing in mind that HSV encephalitis doesn't always make people wickedly febrile and it is treatable. And we should know, we would want to know if the patient has that. So I think practically speaking, it, 
is for most MICUs, it'll be or MICUs or neuro ICUs, hooking this patient up and making sure they're not in non-convulsive status as the reason that they're not coming back to baseline, to me, like makes a lot of sense. I think we're going to get a lot of bang for our buck in looking for um, like what's what is electrically going on in their brain. Okay. So if you were in a setup where you could get any of those things more or less now, you would start with an EEG, even just like a spot EEG? Yeah, even a spot EEG. There's enough concern in the like, and the ED to, or EMS to ED to now me sign off that there's like, oh, this guy could have seized at home. And I think it's really important that we know whether or not he's still seizing. Okay. So you do get them hooked up to EEG. And what they report or you look at is essentially kind of a slow, somewhat disorganized rhythm. Um, but you leave them on for a couple hours and they do notice some intermittent kind of epileptiform looking discharges. Not really seizure per se, but somewhere on that spectrum. Uh, but he's not overtly seizing now. He's not in status. Yeah. So that's very helpful information, right? So we're not going down non-convulsive status epilepticus as a treatment. We do see that there is some like signature of encephalopathy with this theta delta slowing, you know, a spike here and there. Maybe there's some ictal irritation, but he's not like convulsing as the reason that he's not waking up. So that's that's very, very helpful information. Now, let me ask you, because that kind of EEG, which is just sort of slow, it seems like it's kind of the normal EEG in a lot of our ICU patients. Uh, but in, in this guy, maybe he doesn't have as much reason for that because he's not really sedated and he doesn't have a lot of other kind of obvious metabolic problems. So is that actually useful uh, diagnostic information in this case? Yes and no. Um, I still, it's going to be hard to pinpoint that on an etiology, but it does certainly like say like, hey, there's something there's something going on with this guy. This is abnormal. And we don't have another reason for this to be abnormal. It's not like he has a like BUN of 100, in which case I would just be like, his his EEG looks like he's got a BUN of 100. Like there's not a mystery here. Um, but without that sort of metabolic or like that metabolic excuse for this, then I am like, oh, like this, this is legit. This guy has something going on. Okay. And if there is seizure-ish things going on, are you more suspicious that he had a seizure? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, but that, that doesn't necessarily distress. answer your whole kind of diagnostic question though, right? Because you, you might still wonder why he had a seizure. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to. So now we think that probably he did have a seizure, but we still have not determined like, why did this guy have a seizure? I don't know. Could you just, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily stop your workup, but is one possibility just that he has a, is a first time seizure, uh, an undiagnosed epilepsy, and now he's just still pretty densely postictal and eventually is going to wake up and there's nothing wrong with him? I mean, I guess if nothing else were to come of what will now be a very thorough evaluation, maybe. But I don't think I'm, I'm certainly not going to sit this guy in the corner and be like, yeah, he's just postictal. Give him a couple of days and he's going to wake up. And is that partly because most people should have woken up by now? <laughs> Totally, 100%. Like most seizures stop within three minutes and the people like they're postictal for a couple hours. So even if this guy was seizing all the way through the ED, like he's not seizing anymore. Like we got to We got to think about why he's not waking up. Okay. So MRI or LP now? Yeah. So I think that's really going to be the heart of it. I think I should just mention at this point that we should have given this guy thiamine because thiamine is just, you know, a really like crucial thing that we should give everybody who's a little altered. Uh, thiamine never hurts anybody and it could actually really help 
So, you know, I'm thinking through this now. And if this guy rolls into my MICU, I'm going to say like, or, you know, nerves into my neuro ICU, I'm going to be like, yeah, let's just give him the Wernicke dosing of thiamine. Like, we don't know if that's really what's going on, but it certainly is not going to hurt. Would this fit that picture, you think? Kind of, sort of? Not really. I mean, I have seen very, very severe Wernicke's to the point where someone's in a coma, but that was a one in sort of a lifetime case. And so I'm not going to sink my mind on like, that is this case. Okay. But it's fair to say that just about anyone who's encephalopathic, especially if you don't know why, you're going to give some thiamine. Oh, 100%. Thiamine should be in the water. (laughs) Okay. Um, Oh, and I should say, I mean, with the EEG findings, are you going to treat him in any way for seizure? No, I won't. I have a pretty high threshold to treat seizures. Um, They have to be real or they have to be like clearly the interictal continuum that's evolving and becoming more angry. Otherwise, I think we're just seeing encephalopathy. It doesn't matter if you're going to leave him on EEG, so you'll obviously know versus maybe you're in a a setup where you you can't do like continuous or frequent EEGs. Yeah, that's so hard. I really feel for centers like that, and there are many of them. This is someone who, if I don't have the ability to do continuous EEG, um, I may think about transferring him. Like this would be the time where I'm reaching out to my tertiary referral center and saying like, this guy's really not waking up. We don't know why. His, His EEG was not normal. Like, we need help. Can you just transfer this guy? And I think I would be pretty receptive to that. Um, I think that that's a reason that this person would need further and more intensive eval. Um, if that weren't an option, I would still kind of get daily routine EEGs. But you don't think there's benefit of putting someone on just a dose of levetiracetam or something like that? I usually don't. Yeah, I don't. Like, unless we're like, Unless the family calls back and they said, oh, my gosh, we have a we have a camera at home and we we saw him seize because otherwise we don't know when he was last well. And um, he may have, you know, he may have urinated on himself just because he was down for a while. So I think I'd, I'd want a little bit more certainty of that diagnosis. And I'm lucky enough that we have continuous EEG. So I'm going to watch. And if he does have a seizure, like, great, I'll just treat it. Is, is your reluctance to kind of toss around antiepileptics because of the harms of the drugs or because it's going to confuse the diagnostic picture or just because he's going to end up stuck on it for like forever or what? Because some people would say, <laughs> no. hey, what's the harm? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's totally. I think, yeah, yeah. I think I, and then there are some people, I think a lot of people would actually treat this guy. I tend to believe that we, when we start these um, antiepileptic drugs, people continue them indefinitely. Like this is not going to be something that is like, really well, well, like the clinical reasoning is often not well described to the providers that rotate on taking through this, like care of this patient. And that, that levotracetam is going to be left on indefinitely. And I don't think that these are harmless drugs. I mean, these confuse people, they make them irritated. And then like six months later, he's still on levotracetam and he never had a seizure. Like he just had some urine on him when they found him. That that just feels like irresponsible to me. But that said, I am at a center that does have continuous EEG, so I'm watching him very closely. And if he does seize, like, great. Now we now we know that he seized and we responded to it and we treated it. I think that's a good point just in general in the ICU, right? Is that we and I think we don't think about this a lot. We start drugs all the time for maybe it'll help, maybe it won't reasons. Cause like Brandon said, what's the harm, right? But then you know, the it the weekends and a new service provider comes on and then eventually they get transferred out of the unit, maybe off our service altogether. And then the patient goes home and their primary care person looks at 
some drug that they're not familiar with, especially an anti-epileptic drug, right? And says, all right, well, I mean, I guess I continue it because somebody started it for a reason. Yeah, he must yeah. have had a seizure, yeah. 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 Now it's 100%. a year later and you can't drive yeah. a truck or something. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's that's a very reasonable approach. But again, I think that that is with with the um, the benefit of being able to monitor and watch. And so I, I feel for people that have to make these decisions kind of blindly. Um, but I don't think that anti-epileptic or any drug is harmless. We should, yeah. you know. Okay. Um, LP or MRI or just whichever is quickest to get at the moment. Yeah. At this point, I'm just going to, whatever's quicker. Like the EEG, I mean, uh, sorry, the MRI people say like, oh, we can take, take him down right now. I'm like, great. That sounds awesome. Let's do that. If the MRI is going to happen like tomorrow, um, because we're short techs and, you know, this is the post-pandemic life that we live, then sure, like I'm free. Like I'm going to do the LP right now. Okay. Uh, any special, well, contrast on the MRI or any special magic series? 100%. I, um, we, for most things, if you're sending someone down to get the MRI, get the contrast. Uh, the only thing that doesn't really need contrast, in my opinion, is acute stroke. The acute stroke MRI can just, you're just looking basically at the DWI and the flare um, and the SWI or GRU, whatever the, the blood sequence you have is. Um, for everything else, when it's a question of, is it a tumor? Is it an uh, autoimmune thing? Is it an infection? Contrast is going to be very, very helpful. Okay. So uh, I know a lot of people are not super familiar with MRI. We talked about this on Twitter the other day, right? Um, mm -hmm. What does an MRI get you that a CT doesn't in this case? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. The beauty of an MRI is A, just the, the much more structural um, fine detail that we get. And then CT is not going to pick up small, um, small changes in the brain parenchyma. So CT is really good for looking at like early ischemic changes or for hemorrhage. But for subtle things like, like is there a little bit of um, limbic encephalitis or is, uh, is there areas of blood-brain barrier breakdown? Like those we're going to see much more clearly with an MRI. So it's the structural granularity that you get from an MRI. But the sequences also provide you um, evidence of intact versus non-intact brainstem meningitis versus no meningitis, um, protein sort of in the, in the fluid around the brain, sort of looking at like high protein concentration in the CSF. Um, and then even like a small amount of blood is going to be better seen on an MRI than a CT. So like we use this to screen for subarachnoid hemorrhage in patients that like really have a good story, um, but their head CT didn't show a whole lot of blood. So it's just so much more sensitive and specific. Okay. And so you mentioned you know, well, maybe the MRI won't happen until tomorrow because mm -hmm. of various issues. You know, that's, we run into that a lot. I um, mean, it's not uncommon for us to go multiple days waiting on an MRI. At what point do you sort of jump up and down and stomp your feet and say, no, this has to happen? We, we probably can't this wait guy. anymore. Yeah, probably yeah. this guy. Like this is someone, I don't know what's going on with him. He's not waking up. He's not having seizures. We don't think he's got a metabolic or a toxic process. I have no idea what this guy has. And like that MRI is going to help clue me in. So now I, now I would like it. <laughs> okay. So he needs to jump the line. Basically. Yeah. He needs to, okay. he, we don't know what's going on. He needs to go first. Okay. So we're going to push off the routine post-op MRIs. Uh, well, the neurosurgeons I'm sure are going to have a problem with that. Yeah. But, okay. So <laughs> let, in, in the interest of not just becoming, uh, you know, uh, 
robots, let's make sure we're still kind of pursuing this in a rational way. So you're going to get your MRI and your, your LP in a moment, but what is your deferential looking like now? If it, it has evolved at all with a little more history, um, your EEG, and I guess a, a bit more time, um, or is it still really like you're just drawing a blank? Yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm really trying to think of, you know, are there like is this some rare sort of metabolic issue? Like this would be extremely weird for Wilson's disease at this point in this patient's life. But something weird like that where you're like, hmm, this is actually like this is sort of a metabolic process, but not one that we routinely screen for. So that's one thing. I always try to think about like is this sort of a vitamin deficiency like thiamine or sort of like a buildup of copper or something that, you know, we're not going to pick up on just like routine chemistries. Then the other thing I'm thinking of is, is this a true encephalitis? Like now are we looking at, does this person have brain inflammation? And the MRI would be really helpful in that context because it can help in some cases pinpoint sort of the um, the areas of the brain that are involved. And that helps you put together a syndrome, right? So we think of limbic encephalitis or cerebellar cerebellitis or um, we you, we might find like areas of, um, you know, um, thinking through like, is this encephalomyelitis? That would also be very helpful in terms of understanding, you know, does he have um, spinal cord involvement? So those things are going to help us kind of narrow the differential in tandem with the, the CSF we get, right? We're now trying to build a case that this is not just encephalopathy, we're still going to work that up, but this is truly now moving into more encephalitis, meaning like we have a brain inflammation. You, or I'd say a resident or someone, uh, does the LP, which goes okay, and then the patient goes down for an MRI, things are going just swimmingly. Um, the patient comes back up, the CSF is in the lab, you bring up the MRI, and you kind of scan through it. Radiology hasn't looked at it yet. But for you, it looks a little abnormal, but you, it's a little hard to pin down what is going on. What you see is there's, it seems like there's a kind of just faintly increased flare signal uh, in the cortical areas, but kind of diffusely and, and also even subcortical. It's just kind of a, just a little bit of brightness everywhere. Um, nothing really localized. I mean, you don't see blood, you don't really see ischemia. Um, and that's sort of it. You're not, you're not sure what else to make of it. Yeah. So perhaps like with this, you know, sometimes we see cortical ribboning just be, uh, usually on DWI, but it can also still have a flare signal um, from seizures. So sometimes that cortical ribboning um, can actually just be due to seizures. The other thing, this is again, looking not just at flare, but at diffusion weighted imaging, um, that cortical ribboning can also wait, raise your concern for Kutzfeld-Jakob's disease. Um, and so here's a guy who was uh, not acting normally, uh, now has some like f cortical changes, that might kind of rise to my top of the list. Other sort of nonspecific patterns, I mean, again, I think that we need to exonerate HSV because now we're into sort of the, the like, um, we want to be able to treat something. And if it's an infection, like that is something that's worthwhile to treat. Um, that tends to cause more limbic and sort of medial temporal lobe involvement. It also usually causes like it is destructive. And so there's bleeding in those temporal lobes. We're not really seeing that, but I think I'm still going to exclude that. And then we're also thinking kind of through the 
like the perineoplastic autoimmune encephalitides, which sometimes have a very like clear, you know, um, there is a specific, you know, limbic pattern, like limbic encephalitis that we see with anti-NMDA receptor, receptor encephalitis, but not every case has that. And so, you know, I think that you're still keeping a broad differential about like what perineoplastic or autoimmune causes of encephalitis. Another one that people um, may not know about is anti-TPO associated um, autoimmune encephalopathy, which is steroid responsive autoimmune encephalopathy. It, it's, it tends to track with people who have anti-TPO antibodies. So sort of thyroid, um, uh, thyroid antibodies. So that's another one that's, uh, tends to present in older patients. That one's at sterile at the top of my differential in terms of thinking of this guy. But I still like, if it's a nonspecific pattern, um, I have a pretty broad differential still at this point. Okay. So it sounds like you're saying with this MRI, there are certain findings that would have been really classic and specific for certain diagnoses. And also if it were like a really normal MRI, those mm -hmm. would have been helpful. It, but Ooh. with this, you're kind of like, there seems like there's something going on, but it's so in the middle of various typical things, but also maybe somewhat atypical presentations of a number of other things that um, you don't have a lot uh, more to go on. Totally. I mean, I think the one thing I would say that's a little bit different is even a normal brain MRI can still be an autoimmune uh, or perineoplastic process. The the classic example of this, um, we love for limbic encephalitis um, to look like anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Lots of anti-NMDA patients have stone cold normal MRIs. And then we're really reliant on the history and sort of the stereotype progression through an illness to make that diagnosis. Um, if you look at higher sort of advanced neuroimaging, like looking at PET scans, you will then find that there is actually abnormal um, metabolism within the medial temporal lobes. Um, but all that to say is that it is it is sometimes very hard for us to make a diagnosis of encephalitis because the CSF can actually be not all that abnormal and the MRI might not actually be all that abnormal. And so that's why we have to have such a like heightened level of suspicion and sometimes just send the million dollar workup. Okay. And then your, your CSF, I should have asked you, do you just want kind of the usual CSF labs? Or are there any particular things you want to order? And I should say you do this before the MRI, if that makes a difference. Sure. Yeah. So if I'm doing this before the MRI, um, this story is kind of convincing enough at this point that I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure that I'm going to send that autoimmune encephalopathy panel, which is uh, run by the Mayo Clinic or um, AREP does it as well. But that's a panel looking for sort of known um, antigens or antibodies to um, CSF or uh, CNS antigens. So that's a very broad panel. Um, it's expensive. I wouldn't send it willy-nilly on everybody. But this guy, you know, we had already done some of the like basic screening workup. And I don't really have a great reason for why he is profoundly altered. So I would probably consider sending that occasionally. What I'll do is if I'm like sort of on the fence about whether or not this person really deserves that kind of million dollar workup is I'll send the routine studies, including HSV. I pretty much always include HSV. Um, you know, get those first results back. And if they're stone cold normal, then maybe I'm like 
pretty reassured and I'm not going to go crazy yet. Um, but I always, always, always save extra CSF. Do you, I mean, do you draw a whole lot of it in a case like this and the expectation? Oh, 100%. <laughs> if I'm putting a needle in somebody's back at this point, I want to get at least 30 cc's. Okay. Um, Not like a wimpy five. Okay. So uh, in this particular case, you what you find is um, a somewhat elevated protein in the CSF. And there is a presence of some white cells, um, but at least initially it, it looks to be sterile. I mean, we'll see if it grows anything in, in a few days. Um, and the, they send off your HSV and your, your magic panels to the Midwest. Um, and you have your MRI, of course. Now what? And I'm expecting a lot of these send out tests you're not going to get back for a while. Yeah, that is, this is the hard part, right? So I think a, a lot depends on kind of your gestalt for this situation. Um, a lot of times we don't have a full workup bag. And so for me, if the MRI is a little bit abnormal in a way that I don't really understand, and there is clearly evidence of some inflammation within the CSF, you said his protein was high. Just as a pearl, I use high being like higher than the patient's ages. So um, older patients are going to have a higher um, protein in their CSF than a younger patient. So my my like rule of thumb is that a protein is high in the LP if it's higher than their age, right? So young people have lower protein, older people have higher. So, but let's say his is for real high, like it comes back and it's like, you know, 150 or something. And you're like, that's for real. So now I have like more convincing evidence that this is an inflammation. This is inflammation in the brain as an explanation for why the patient has this abnormal EEG finding. We're putting together this picture that this is more than just encephalopathy. There is actual inflammation. The question is then, is this an inflammatory process that needs antibiotics? It does not sound like it. The HSV we said is negative and um, we haven't found any other convincing reasons to believe that this guy has an infection. Uh, or is it sort of one of these neuroinflammatory disorders, by which I mean autoimmune or paraneoplastic or parainfectious, in which case it is going to respond to neuromodulation, which is either steroids, Plex, or IVIG. Uh, you you mentioned also um, uh, Crucifold Jacob. Are you sending like prion tests? <laughs> I think that depends on like how convincing. So the, the finding for that. Um, is this cortical ribbonine and these hockey sticks in the uh, like bright little hockey sticks uh, looking things in the uh, basal ganglia. If I were to find that, then yes, I'm 100% going to send the like the RT quick. Uh, and that's going to take some time to come back. But I'm going to be like really suspicious of that. Okay. Otherwise, um, no. Probably not. I mean, I don't. It kind of depends on if I went back and asked the family, like, has he had abnormal movements? Does he startle easily? Then if they said, oh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, he really has, then, yeah, let's send it. Would you want to see some sort of risk factor for that? Or, hey, no, it's sporadic. it could happen to anyone. Yeah. Sporadic. It's really just terrible luck. Okay. There are some familial cases of it, but for the most part, it's sporadic. So it sounds like what's kind of leading your differential at this point is some sort of inflammatory CNS problem, some kind of an encephalitis, although you don't necessarily know what. So is this a point maybe where you can start to start thinking not open-ended in terms of what could be going on, but think in terms of what treatments we have available? <laughs> so yeah. you said maybe 
antibiotics, not so well. Would you have had this patient on antibiotics already, realistically? Realistically, I probably would have had them on acyclovir. People with uh, bacterial meningitis tends to cause like a really malignant picture. Do I think it's wrong if the ED put them on them? No. Am I going to continue them? Probably not. But like I tend to do the LP pretty quickly. So like I'm going to answer that question within a couple hours. So is it fine to me if they got started on empiric vanx, ceftriaxone? He's an older guy. So ampicillin, I can't remember exactly how old he is, but he might be at the range for listeria coverage. I'm fine with that. Um, the one that I would really would be likely to keep going is the acyclovir. Until you got an HSV back. Yes. Okay. And then if it and was a would, really convincing picture, I would send another one. And you'd probably stop the other antibiotics if they were on when you got your initial CSF, which just didn't look impressive. 100%. Okay. All right. So what, what else? You're talking about immunomodulation. So what, what are your kind of tools that you're starting to, to play with here? Yeah. So this guy's pretty severe off, right? Like he is in a, basically in a coma at this point, right? We're still not waking him up. Um, so at this point, we have kind of three things that you can do. You can use steroids, which are just, you know, like a shotgun approach to like just blunting the, um, uh, the whole immune regulation process. You can just kind of take a shotgun approach to it. Um, IVIG kind of works in a sort of magical way of uh, interacting to sort of uh, bind up the bad antibodies and, uh, you know, the ways that it totally works is a little bit still mysterious to me. Or you have my favorite, which is plasma exchange, which is basically just ridding the body of the antibodies that are in the plasma and putting back some albumin. And uh, the, re the reason I like this one is that if it if you give them IVIG first and say they don't respond to IVIG, then everyone has this like deep desire to then do Plex. Like if one didn't work, maybe the other one will. Um, then you are you are plasma exchanging off all the drug that you just give. And IVIG is very, very expensive. So I don't want to do that. I personally feel like it's it's faster for some processes. It is definitely, in my opinion, faster from making patients with myasthenia gravis get better. And so I'm just biased now, and I think I I just prefer using plasma exchange. Um, but you know, these are these are all sort of the induction drugs. There are certainly some uh, immuno immuno uh, neuroinflammation diseases that respond better to plasma exchange. Sort of the, the obvious one there is neuromyelitis optica, which actually responds much, much better. Some of the other, you know, neuroinflammatory processes like sarcoid respond really well to steroids. We don't have a good slam dunk diagnosis that he has either of those things, but my, pr like, practically speaking, I just like plasma exchange best. And so it's my go-to. So is that what you would do in this case? You would sort of empirically put in a dialysis catheter and you would try to plasma exchange this guy? Yeah, I would. I totally would. You would not give IVIG and you would not give steroids? I would give steroids too because they might help with sealing some of that blood-brain barrier. Steroids for all, like, you know, steroids are going to make people hyperglycemic for a couple of days, but like, I'm okay with that. What kind so, of a steroid dose are we talking about here? Oh, like the big one, like the one gram. Some people do the 250, Q6. Like, I hate that. Like, just give one gram right at the front of the day and be done with it. But you do you. Okay, a gram of methylprednisolone. And the, would you wait for your HSV to come back for you did that? Um, it comes back pretty quick. So I don't think it would take all that long to wait for. Okay. Um, yeah, no. Okay. And is your plan to 
continue doing both of these things or to see how he responds or what's like step two? Yeah, step two is waiting. Step two is like committing to this. And the, the range for plasma exchange is usually five exchanges, one done every other day. Um, for some things, you might see like a pretty quick turnaround. Like the obvious one there is myasthenics. As you rid them of their antibody, they start to get a lot better. Um, other processes, including these encephalitides, can take a lot longer to uh, to get better from. So like, for example, let's say, you know, another thing that might be on the differential for this guy is does he have bicker staph encephalitis, which is a um, kind of like a, a subtype of Guillain-Barre that tends to affect the brainstem. Um, those patients like respond, they respond to Plex, but it's going to take like weeks. And so I think now we're sort of in this, we're going to treat this inflammatory process with steroids and with plasma exchange, and we're going to support them through their acute hospitalization. And at some point, usually within the time that they're sort of on their plasma exchange, like, uh, you know, they, it takes about 10 days. So about a weekend, we'll usually get back that encephalitis panel. And either that's going to tell us, you know, that we were on the right track or we're going to have to keep scratching our heads. So you're treating, you're not, perhaps he'll respond and just perk up, but re more realistically, you're treating until you get your tests back um, or in, until everyone kind of loses their nerve or if your tests come back negative and then you have to decide what to do then. Yeah, I still think I'm probably going to commit them to the full five days. The five exchange or the five exchanges done over 10 days. Um, you know, unless something like the thymine comes back undetectable. And then that's not going to be a problem that's solved by a plasma exchange. That's a that's a metabolite problem. Um, Are you giving steroids for five days as well? Yeah, I'll do the full five days of steroids. Um, depending on kind of where we are, I may or may not start maintenance steroids. Um usually after the induction phase, like plasma exchange is still going on and it's going to continue to keep them suppressed. And by the end of 10 days, maybe we're going to have more clarity about whether or not this is something that needs maintenance steroids. Um, but this is tricky. Like this is, these are frustrating cases. You're right. So uh, let me give you a, a counterfactual first. Let's say your tests come back in, let's say five days, you just finished your mm -hmm. course and everything is negative. Uh, and the patient is was similar. Maybe he's waking up a bit more, but he he's still pretty encephalopathic. Um, I mean, do you have any idea where you would go with that then, or you just kind of play it by ear? I mean, this happens. Like at this point, we're scanning again. Like I think at this point, like he's getting another MRI of the brain. We're gonna see like did these things change? Have they evolved? Is it more in a pattern at this point? Do we need? Uh, are there diagnostic studies that we didn't think of on the first time? Like now everyone, like now I assign the medical student to this case and I'm like, I need you to think, I need you to summarize everything that was sent. And we need to think about if there's any other testing that we could do in this case. Um, I like, I just make a list of the, I think I'm actually, I have a list of these things so we can share it for the show notes of all the things that I think through when someone has these mystery cases to double check myself. Cause there's a lot and these are rare and like, we don't always remember them. Um, so okay. I'll run that list again to make sure that we're not missing something. Okay. All right. Well, in this case, you're fortunate because you get your tests back from the moon in five days and, uh, it's actually positive for, um, NMDA receptor antibody. So you have, I guess, a diagnosis now, an mm -hmm. anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Um, mm -hmm. what's changing now with anything 
I guess you've been treating it, right? So yeah, you feel good. But now yeah. what's the next step? Um, so the other thing that I'll mention, we, we probably would have done this in real life um, before the test came back. But for any of these where there's a question of, is it a perineoplastic syndrome? We do a really thorough cancer evaluation. So that's a CT, chest, head, and pelvis. If it's um, a guy, we'll do a testicular ultrasound. If it's a woman, um, and it's a, if it were a concerning like phenotype for anti-NMDA, we'll do either an MRI pelvis or a vaginal ultrasound to look for an ovarian teratoma. Um, I've sent, I've like convinced people in our department that we need to get the PET scan of the PET, like a body PET scan to look for, you know, is there some sort of malignancy or other inflammatory thing that we can go after and biopsy? So let me back up and say, we probably would have been doing that while we're, while we're treating them. We're going to try to get more data. So Pansy T plus ultrasounds of whatever gonads they have, the, the CT alone does not rule out some little tumor or something. Pet scan, if, if pet scan, if the people want to work with you, um, they don't get very well reimbursed for the uh, inpatient pet scans. So I don't know that there's a lot of incentive to do that. But sure. sometimes like you'll find someone who's like academically interested in doing it. So, you know, it helps. Okay. All right. So you did get a scan um, and uh, no one really saw anything on that. So mm -hmm. now you have your labs back. What's next? Yeah. So I think this... The classic anti-NMDA is a younger patient. I mean, when we think about like the stereotype for this disease, it's going to be a young woman. The classic presentation is that they are a little paranoid. That paranoia progresses to sort of catatonia, and then that progresses to movement disorders. And I think you had mentioned at some point that they become hemodynamically unstable, like our guy had a little tachycardia. They get these sort of storming episodes. Um, if that continues, they'll get these dyskinesias and these really complex movements. They'll have a lot of um, hyper uh, salivation and um, and then they're in a coma and then they actually regress out of it the exact same way. So as they get better, they go back from the coma to these complex movements to this sort of like catatonic state to then this paranoid state and then they're better. Um, and so it's not that every patient reads the book like this, but um, an older gentleman is an atypical for that presentation. Not, not impossible at all, but just sort of atypical. Um, if we've done a malignancy scan, like we're going to tell the family that we want them to keep getting malignancy scans for the next six months just to make sure that this was not the first presentation of their cancer. Um, this is kind of an older gentleman with some uh, cancer risk factors like smoking. So we certainly want to make sure that this is not a, the first sign of his malignancy. And then they just need continual immunosuppression. Um, usually this is a monophasic illness, so it doesn't come back. But um, this is this can be a really difficult uh, to manage case. So then we have to think about, well, what's our long-term immunosuppression? So we don't want to keep them on steroids forever. What are we going to do to immunosuppress them for the long term? Um, our practice here is Rituxan. Um, it's our practice for a lot of these like autoimmune sort of neuroinflammatory uh, need long-term immunosuppression. Um, it's, at least for us, it's easy to get that in the hospital. And so we would do the first dose in the hospital as soon as that's confirmed. Like once we have that antibody diagnosis, we're giving them the rituxan. And then two weeks later, we give another dose to, to complete that loading dose of immunosuppression, which then hopefully achieves B-cell suppression for six months. And then it's really supportive. 
these patients can take a really long time to wake up. So like how, how long? I mean, this guy is in your ICU on the vent and stuff. Like how, when is he going to start perking up here? And given that he's been treated, obviously it may be a different answer if you had not treated it. Yeah. I mean, realistically, this person is going to LTAC on the vent. And this can be really difficult because of their storming episodes. Um, they, they are not the easiest to ventilate patients. So they have vent dyssynchrony a lot of the time. Um, so hopefully you hope for the best that with treatment, they're getting better. Um, but it is, it is not going to be like two weeks and then you're better. This is going to be for the patients who do recover. And I think the ones that are going to do best are the young women that are kind of stereotyped for this. Like they have a lot more neuro reserve than someone who's a middle-aged guy. Um, but even for them, like it can take months for them to, to start to recover. This is a, this and if you hadn't treated it, then is the natural history, he would just never recover. Yes. It's progressive. Even sometimes with treatment, this is a progressive disease. I mean, we don't see these all that commonly, but you know, I can certainly think of cases where despite aggressive treatment, like they got rituxan, they got the loading dose, didn't seem to work. And then we went down the route of like, well, maybe let's try cytoxan, which is clearly a more toxic drug, still didn't work. And eventually they ended up in palliative because it just didn't get better. But I think okay. that, you know, we can be hopeful that that's not going to be this person's presentation. So, you know, I, th I think when you're dealing with these autoimmune encephalitides, the part of the challenge for a lot of people diagnostically is just that there's a whole lot of them. And mm -hmm. people have trouble kind of making sense of it. Is it fair to say that a good approach is just to consider the possibility of the category and then send off a big panel of tests? <laughs> yeah, I think that is reasonable. Um, there are some that there are not included on the Mayo panel. Like the Mayo, you know, this is their this is their research, and they they come up with new ones like every couple of years that aren't necessarily included on the panel. And it's really nice. We have an actually an autoimmune group at Emory, and so we we you know, we huddle with them and we say like, is there other ones that you think that we should be sending? Is there someone we should talk to at Mayo about what the syndrome is? So I think collaborate is a, is a really important takeaway here is that, you know, this is a specialized and evolving field and it helps to have experts or, and to reach out to people who are kind of following along with as they define these antibodies. All right. Well, Tough case. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, what I mean, what do you want to say about this topic? Because, uh, like you said, this comes up not too infrequently, and of course, it's not always an autoimmune problem, but probably sometimes it is. Where do you think people are going wrong with this kind of general workup, and then, and then certainly, if this actually does end up being the diagnosis? Yeah, I think a lot of this is just not thinking about it, right? And like, like you said, like consider this category. Um, I think it's really helpful to have a framework that you know, like. Is this metabolic? Is this toxic? Is this an autoimmune or primary neurologic issue? And just going down, you know, have a framework, have a list, and just ask yourself, is it this? Is it this? Does it make sense to send this? Um, so we'll put that in the show notes because I think sometimes just having a list to consult is really the the win here. Like, you're not going to remember all these things off your top of your head. I do this day in and day out. And like midway through this conversation, I thought like, oh, oh, we would have done something a little bit like we would have sent them for this pan CT, you know. We don't do this every day. And so I think you actually really need a framework for how to approach these patients and do so systematically. Um, some of it is just realizing that you're going to have to send a lot of tests. And I really try not to do that. I don't like to send a whole bunch of things just as a shotgun approach. But in these complex situations, sometimes to be thorough to not miss something does mean just doing a little bit more workup than, you know, your run-of-the-mill patient needs.
Okay. So the, like a patient like this who is early on, really not clear what's going on, they do need their MRI and their LP and stuff. This is not like a, a, a you know diagnostically conservative situation. People are trying to avoid doing difficult. You just got to do it. No, you just got to do it. Like just do the test, get the information, call down to the MRI saying, I need this MRI to, be hap- to happen because I don't know what's going on with this patient. So you have to. All right, Brian, deep thoughts on this matter. Like you said, this is a really challenging case. Um, this is stuff that we don't, even in our neuro ICU, we don't deal with stuff like this pretty regularly. So I think this is good to have, you know, in case like you were saying, a framework of even just a checklist of things to go down for the folks who are out there who don't deal with stuff like this on a regular basis um, for the rare case when it shows up in your place. And you know, I feel like obviously part of the reason we made the case this way is because it does end up being a diagnosis that is treatable. As you said, sometimes there is no diagnosis, mm. and I don't know if that's because we're still missing it or because mm-hmm. like science has missed it. Like no one knows <laughs> the diagnosis yet, um, and I just can only hope that for most of those cases it was not treatable. In other words, we, we didn't have something we could have offered. Right. But who knows. It's ever evolving. That's why neuro is so interesting. It's like the greatest field because we're learning so much all the time. We should all want to be neurologists. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You're both looking to be like, maybe. (laughs) All right, Casey. Well, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for helping us out with this tricky No, I totally appreciate it. No, I'll send you over um, the little diagnostic framework and checklist that I use because I think you got to have something. I'm excited. And I, I, I know we often kind of put little things in the, the show notes, which I'm sure you guys don't often look at, but I, I think that in particular will be useful here because it, like you said, it really is something where you're probably going to miss something if you don't have some kind of reference. This is not like just encyclopedia brain, you memorize everything. This is the go and get some help kind of thing. hundred percent. Ask for help. All right, guys. Well, please remember that whatever we say, uh, this is not medical advice for your patient in particular. It's just some general educational content. And certainly none of us are representing our institutions, just our own brains. Best of luck. We'll talk to you next time.